0: Hello, and welcome to the podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, a channel with the New Books Network. This is your co-host, Shahnaz Aqani. Today, our conversation is with Alyssa Gabay on her wonderful new book, Gender and Succession in Medieval and Early Modern Islam, Bilateral Descent and the Legacy of Fatima, published in 2020 with IB Taurus. Gabay is an Associate Professor and Director of Undergraduate Studies at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Her areas of interest include Indo-Persian culture, Shiaism, gender and Islam, religious pluralism, among others. Her recent book, Gender and Succession in Medieval and Early Modern Islam, the subject of today's conversation, shows that contrary to assumptions about Islam's patrilineal nature, there is in fact precedent in pre-modern Islamic history of Muslims' recognition of bilateral descent or descent from both the mother and the father, Though, of course, bilateral descent was by no means universally acknowledged. Although not the only example of this argument, Muhammad's daughter Fatima is essential to the study because of her status in both Sunni and Shia societies historically, as well as because especially Shiais, but not only Shiais, have used the example of Fatima through whom Muhammad's lineage can be traced to argue in support of bilateral descent. In our conversation, we discussed the concept of bilateral descent and its three components of women as mothers, heiresses, which I have a hard time pronouncing, but it is the feminine plural of the word heir and successors, Fatima's relevance and significance to the discussion of descent, and as a representative of bilateral descent, parallels between Mary, the mother of Jesus, and other pious women in Muslim history. Fatima's claim to Fadak as her inheritance and its impact on Sunni and Shia history, and female rulers in Muslim history. The book would make for an enjoyable and educational read for anyone interested in gender studies, Islam and gender, female authority, biographical studies, medieval Islam, and Islamic history, and would make for a great resource for both undergraduate and graduate Islam courses. I enjoyed my conversation with Alyssa greatly, and I hope that you all will too. Hi Alyssa, thank you so much for being here with me and talking about your book Gender and Succession in Medieval and Early Modern Islam, Bilateral Descent and The Legacy of Fatima. I enjoyed the book so much and I'm so excited to talk to you about it. We're just talking about how I'm kind of obsessed with Fatima. It's a a recent obsession. (laughs) I really got so much out of this book and I look forward to our conversation.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. And um, now you know what it's like to be obsessed with Fatima.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So it's our tradition on the New Books podcast to ask our guests to introduce themselves and share their intellectual journey with us. What led you to the field and especially to writing this book?
1: Yeah. Um, so I got into Islamic studies in a in a rather roundabout way. Um, so my father was um, Iranian. He was of uh, Baha'i and Jewish ancestry, and um, so I was always kind of around Iranian relatives and Iranian culture when I was growing up. But um, but I didn't have a strong sense of Iranian um, identity, and I wasn't really encouraged encouraged to have one. Um, But in my it was in my 30s that I developed a a real interest in knowing more um, about Iranian history and culture. And this was very personal. Um, So I um, I wanted to know why my grandparents had gotten divorced in Iran um, when my grandmother was only 20. And um, And so I wanted to interview my grandmother, who was still alive, living in Alexandria, Virginia. And so I started to to learn Persian to be able to interview her. And studying Persian made me fall in love with with Persian literature. Um, And that took me kind of um, naturally into the study of Islam. So I ended up getting my Ph.D. um, from the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago. So I got my Ph.D. in classical Persian literature. Um, But even though that was my my primary focus, uh, I studied early and medieval Islamic history and Islamic civilization. I don't know if that's uh, a term that we use anymore, but that's what it was called when I was there um, and so on. And, um, and these areas of, of study weren't ever really separated. And, um, and I'm really, uh, I'm grateful for that. I think studying just classical Persian literature on its own, as, as great as that would have been, would have been, um, it's a much richer experience to, to study it alongside uh, history, for example. Um, so, for example, I spent a lot of time reading uh, classical Persian texts with my advisor, Heshmet Mwayad. Um He was a, a professor of classical Persian literature for many years at the University of Chicago, and I was really lucky to work with him. And um, I wasn't a traditional grad student. I was in my 30s, but he he accepted me nonetheless. He kind of took me under his wing. Um, and in some ways, it was really kind of an old-fashioned relationship between you know, the peer and the, and the Morid, you know, the mentor and the mentee. He was uh, he he kind of felt responsible for forming me, and I was kind of ready to be formed. Um, he was really a, a traditionalist in the sense of his uh, his great love for Persian literature and his feeling that students should get a very solid grounding in the classics. Um, so a lot of our classes really consisted of, um, you know, three or four students sitting around the table in his office and just translating a difficult text, something like Jami or Rumi, and, you know, so very, very close reading and, and translation. Um, so that was a, an incredibly rigorous and difficult experience, but a really rewarding one. Um, But at the same time, I was taking um, medieval history classes with uh, Professor John Woods. Um, And this was a really, you know, again, a really good kind of counterpart to this or counterpoint to this kind of more detailed work that I was doing with um, Professor Moayat. So we would look at really broad themes and movements um, like the Ayan Amir dynamic or confessional ambiguity or the rise of Persian culture. And um, so it was a very, again, a kind of very rich experience. And one thing I'm grateful for is that, um, you know, I didn't go into, I didn't enter into the study of Islam or or, or get an education that was really Arabia or Arabic focused. Um, definitely the, the importance of Arabia and Arabic were, were emphasized, but we were really coming at Islam from the edges. And I, I liked doing that. Um, I think it was very productive. Um, so in terms of how I got into writing this book, my first book was about uh, Amir Hosro, who was the, a 13th century Indian poet, and I was writing about this new culture that he helped to create and, um, and to propagate through his literature, Indo-Persian culture, which really kind of blended Indic and Persianate mores. And I was especially looking at how he examined and, um, and reversed hierarchies that were very much entrenched in Islamic civilization. Um, so he's very, you know, very aware of these hierarchies that exist, and he's, but he's very playful with them. So things like scholar, poet, Arabic, Persian, or even man, woman, right? So he's constantly playing with them and inverting them. And it's a very kind of radical and generative act. Um, and gender was definitely part of this. I have a whole chapter on his treatment of, of gender issues, looking at a particular uh, story from uh, his poem Hash Behish. And um, and this question of gender was something that really kind of grabbed me, um, and I decided to pursue it even more deeply in my um, in my next book. So the way that I got started on the second book, I was researching my dissertation on Amir Khusro in India, and I was spending some time at um, at Aligarh University. And I was looking at various um, manuscripts of divans by Amir Hostro and I came across a poem that really startled me. And, you know, Amir Khostro, as I said, he's he's all about inverting hierarchy. So maybe I shouldn't have been so surprised, <laughs> but nevertheless, I was. Um, because in it, he's speaking about daughters, and he's saying that daughters are actually better than sons, and that you should prefer your grandchildren Um, from a daughter above grandchildren born from a son because the prophet's grandsons were born from his daughter, right? And then he gets into these Aristotelian ideas about how a daughter uh, contributes blood to the making of a child, whereas a son only contributes water, that is semen, um, and blood is thicker than water, so the connection is stronger. Um, but he's definitely, you know, identifying the children of, uh, of a daughter as part of his lineage. And this really, um, the whole view ran so sort of contrary to uh, the stereotypical views about daughters in uh, medieval Muslim society. So I was, I was very much struck by it. And I was like, you know, what's going on here? And so that really sort of set me out on a journey. Um, to find answers, and it, um, it led me into an exploration of bilateral descent um, in medieval Muslim societies, which is what the, the present book explores. But I really had, I really had to, um, to set it aside for many years while I was finishing the first book and getting settled in my career and, and things like that.
0: Footnotes and bibliography and your resources, the, the, the sources that you use were just are really rich and diverse. I really appreciated that as well. Um, so you can see sort of an element of your previous research in here, and I appreciated that too. So, of course, the, the, the focus of the book, uh, the, the focus on, on the bi- bilateral descent in the book is on Muslim-majority countries, but what does bilateral descent mean and what are its alternatives?
1: Yeah. So when I'm talking about bilateral descent, um, I'm talking, so a bilateral society is a society that... Uh, traces descent through both male and female lines. Um, So traditionally in extremely uh, patrilineal societies, and I don't know that anything this extreme has ever existed, but if we're talking about like the very extreme vision of patrilineality, um, descent is traced only through men. So if if a man has a son and a daughter, his lineage will only be carried on through the son and the son's children. So if the daughter marries someone and has children, um, they will be accounted part of her husband's lineage, not hers, and so she's she's really considered a, a dead end for her birth family's lineage, right? She's a she's a vessel or a receptacle for her husband's lineage, and this is really kind of encapsulated um, in an Arabic saying that I, I came across over and over again <laughs> in my research, and and I, I think it's actually pre-Islamic, but um, but. You know, Muslims quote it, which, and it says our sons are the sons of our sons, but the sons of our daughters are the sons of distant men. So if I'm a man, mm-hmm. my son's sons are my sons, but my daughter's sons are, the sons, are her husband's sons. So that's kind of patrilineality. Um, but in bilateral societies, um, the offspring of both daughters and sons um, are seen as belonging to both parents' families of birth through their lineages. And um, and of course, if we're talking about matrilineal, then you know they belong to the mother's side, right? And um, I didn't come across that so so often. Um, but anyway, it, so you know, bilateral descent is uh, is is very significant. Or, or lineage; these these sort of conceptions of lineage are are so significant. They have you know implications for inheritance, for succession, for custody, um, and and for the status of women overall.
0: So are there any parts of the world where bilateral descent is a norm today? And if so, what does that look like? And I'm, I'm especially wondering in the case of lineage as determined through, say, last name choices for children.
1: Yeah, you know, um, it's, it's a really good question. And I know that in Spain, um, people do take on both their father's and their mother's last names. Um, there are probably other examples of this, but that's the only you know that's the the first example that really comes to me. Um, we see I mean you can think of the United States as a fairly bilateral society. I mean certainly if we look at things like custody and inheritance and um, citizenship and nationality, um, those are all pretty bilateral here. but if you think about it, um, children or um, uh, most women still do you know take their husband's names when they get married and most, um, children still take their father's names. Um, they have their father's name, so that's still a patrilineal, a vestige of patrilineality that continues in this country. You know, I mean, even countries that are supposedly very progressive still have all of these vestiges of patrilineality. Um, you know, Great Britain, they there's still inheritance laws that really favor sons. Um, the succession laws for the royalty in Great Britain were only recently changed um, to, uh, to make things more egalitarian between male and, and female children. Um, so, you know, um, I think that there, you know, I think that there are some countries that are, you know, that are pretty bilateral, but I don't, I don't know of any that are, that are completely bilateral. And I'm sure that there are some out there that are matrilineal that I, you know, that I'm unaware of and that, um, you know, somebody, somebody can, call in or comment and and let me know about that. But that wasn't the focus of my study. so, So it's possible that that's out there as well.
0: I, I believe Mexico and a couple other, or some other Latin American and South American countries also have this idea of the um, both the mother's and the father's last name being passed on to children. Yeah. But of course, at some point, you're going to have to choose, you know, somebody's, one, one parent's last name, and that ends up being the father's last name.
1: Right, right. Um, Unless they just go around. I mean, here we have it, So, you know, maybe, maybe they continue to go with that. I don't know. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, So I I meant to ask also um, if you could tell us about this book, um, the research and writing process, your methodology, some of your primary findings, um, what you see as its main interventions, or just anything about the book that you would like our readers to know before we get into the meat.
1: Okay, Okay. Um, sure. Um, So basically, the book examines um, cases of bilateral descent in medieval and early modern islamic societies and at first i was um i was examining this issue in the context of classical persian literature <laughs> given my training but i saw uh, relatively soon that i was going to have to go beyond those bounds um in order to answer my my research questions and that led me into a much more um, interdisciplinary approach which was framed mostly by gender studies um so the book is really trying to answer the question, how was descent um, conceived of by medieval and early modern Muslims? To whom did your children belong? Um, what's the nature of the relationship of different family members to each other? And it's a question with so many facets. Um, It's a biological question. It's a legal question. It's an economic question. Um, So to answer it, I I, I cast a very wide net, as you noted earlier. So I look at scientific treatises. I look at Hadith collections, Quran commentary, uh, poetry, historical chronicles, endowment deeds, biographical dictionaries. So I'm really trying to say in a a broad sense, how how did people conceive of this idea? Um, and, and really, kind of focusing in on examples of bilateralism. Now, um, some studies have come out and said quite boldly that um, Islam is a patrilineal religion, and that all Islamic societies are patrilineal. But um, that really doesn't that that statement really doesn't hold up, you know, given the evidence. Um, so my main finding or contribution was that um, that even though pre-modern Islamic societies were typically patrilineal, maybe mostly patrilineal, some showed very distinct bilateral tendencies. And this comes out over a very wide geographical and chronological range, right? It's not confined to Sunni or Shi societies, it's not confined to a certain time period or region. And it manifests in how people talked about children, it manifests in inheritance practices, Um, succession patterns, and particularly among the elite. Um, Now, people have in the past done um, very specific studies kind of looking at different aspects of bilateralism. So inheritance, say, in you know, the Timurid dynasty or the Safavid dynasty or the the Kuyunlu. And these are really valuable. You know, I drew a lot on a lot of this research in my book, but they don't take a step back and look at the the bigger picture, which is, um, you know, trying to put together these pieces of the puzzle to to see what this tells us. So so I think that's one big area of my kind of intervention or or contribution. Um, And the second big area is in how the book looks at Fatima, the daughter of the prophet. Um, So I mentioned earlier that Amir Khosrow uses her as proof for saying that daughters are better than sons. So in this poem, you know, he's just, you know, prefer daughters over sons because, or prefer the children of daughters over the children of sons because the prophet's grandsons were through his daughter. So um, Fatima is really this sort of model for bilateral descent um, in Islam, even though, of course, you know, scholars aren't calling her that, but this is essentially what she is. And I show how she was, um, was depicted in that light uh, in Hadith literature and elsewhere, um, and also what its impact was for both Sunnis and, and Shi'is. Now, again, there are many, many studies of Fatima, um, and there are studies of how she appears in Shi Hadith literature. Um, and some of these have looked at how she was regarded as, as someone who transmitted the prophetic bloodline and, um, and, and how this was coupled with an exalted status for her. Um, so some works have looked at this question. Uh, but this aspect is not, is, it's, it's often not highlighted. It's not examined thoroughly. It's just kind of, you know, mentioned here and there. Um, but to me, it's so central to an understanding of Fatima and her status that I um, I play it up much more. Um, and just one more thing, also frequently in contemporary scholarship, um, Fatima isn't really seen as a, as a feminist icon, right? Um, this is changing, but traditionally she's been regarded as, as sort of a vessel or sort of an emblem of purity and subservience who... Acts more as a um, as a hindrance to women than someone who can actually be uh, be helpful to them. So she's someone that they're kind of continually measured against um, and falling short of, uh, and she's not really seen too much as an agent or as an activist. Um, so the image of Fatima as an agentic woman who is a feminist icon or who can be one is one that I've I've tried to excavate. Um, so that's one more thing, looking at Fatima from a feminist perspective through the lens of, um, of bilateralism in a way that she hasn't been looked at thoroughly uh, before.
0: So the book focuses on three aspects of bilateral descent, right, which are mothers, hei- um, heiresses, heiress. And and successors. So can you unpack for us um, these particular aspects and perhaps address also how each contributes to potential consequences for the status of women?
1: Sure. Sure. So I do want to say I, I have separated these out in, in the book, but they're very much overlapping and one really kind of grows out of the other. So, you know, even though they're, I, I'll talk about them separately, they really do kind of, um, they, there's a lot of interlinking that goes on there. Um, so in some ways, um, this first notion, um, that of motherhood is is sort of the most basic concept of bilateral descent. And It really is the kind of um, radical notion um, that children belong to both their mothers and their fathers and to both lineages, and um, that both mothers and fathers contribute significantly to the making of a child. Um, And this may seem really obvious to us today, but it was uh, by no means completely accepted in pre-modern times, whether we're talking about Muslim or non-Muslim societies, Uh, So a lot of early Greek thinkers and and Muslim thinkers following them argued that women didn't contribute very much to the making of a child. Uh, You have the notion that women contribute passive material, the sort of raw material, um, the blood, which the male semen, um, which is the the carrier of the soul shapes into a new individual, so if all goes well, the father is imprinting the child with his identity the The woman is just giving raw material, providing a vessel for the fetus. she's not contributing a soul, she's not imprinting the child with her identity. Um, and we certainly see this in this saying that i've that I've already quoted, our sons are the sons of our sons, but the sons of our daughters are the sons of distant men, right daughters. The daughter didn't contribute something to that child, or at least that contribution is not recognized. And you see it, too. I mean, in, in, you know, there's lots of ideas around there today that the child belongs to the father, is part of his heart and a piece of his body. Right. Um, No mention of mothers. And. Um, This is definitely detrimental to the status of women. Um, I think it really stems from and uh, and reinforces the idea of women as inferior, as being unable to create, as providing matter rather than soul, and also as sort of disappearing into the identity of their husbands, uh, not having uh, an identity of their own, Um, and again, just being kind of a vessel. Um, And this can also inhibit a woman's ability to have access to her children in cases of death or divorce. So not across the board. You know, custody is often granted to women. But if children are seen as intrinsically belonging to their fathers, then men often win out in custody battles. Right. Especially if there's a divorce and a woman remarries. Um, But this was by no means everyone, by no means did all, uh, you know, medieval Muslims subscribe to those views. Many Muslim thinkers believe that both um, men and women contributed something formative to the creation of a fetus, and they, and they quote hadith to support it. And in some cases, um, the consequences of this, of this recognition of bilateral descent are very, are very tangible. So today, you know, recognition of bilateral descent gives women more custody rights over children, or allows them to transmit their uh, citizenship or their nationality to their children. Um, in pre-modern times, uh, the consequences may have been less tangible. So, if you have a son who is uh, named for his mother, for example, uh, which which did happen, and which is a, an indication of bilateral descent. Uh, you know who knows how that woman is actually going to materially benefit, um, but but I think that naming women definitely honors them and makes them visible uh, rather than erasing them, and it and it kind of restores this uh, reproductive or creative power to them that they might uh, that they might otherwise be lacking. Um, So that's the idea of mothers, of of motherhood, the idea that, you know, that mothers are actually related in important ways to, to their children. Um, Another uh, important way that bilateral descent can be recognized or ignored is through, um, is through inheritance. Um, So what a woman and, uh, and her children materially inherit from her family of birth is a real indication of, uh, the degree to which they're seen as belonging to her family, uh, the family of birth. Um, so, very strict patrilineal societies would cut women out of inheritance schemes entirely. Right, and I'm talking in general terms here. I'm not talking about any uh, particular Islamic society, but but that's what would happen. They, you know, women would not inherit. A daughter basically ceases to exist after she marries, or she's, uh, or she's a piece of property to be inherited rather than someone who who can inherit. Um, And naturally, her children, again, are not part of her birth family, so they wouldn't inherit from the birth family. So instead, in very, very patrilineal societies, you often have a very big emphasis on agnatic kin, right? The paternal grandfathers, paternal uncles, paternal nephews, paternal cousins, what's known as the asaba in Arabic. And, um, and again, this is something you have a lot, there's a lot of variety and there's great flux in medieval Islam. Um, So according to traditional narratives, pre-Islamic Arabia was very patrilineal. And when Islam came along, it um, introduced inheritance laws that put, put much less emphasis on patrilineality um, and patrilineal relatives and much more on close kin, including daughters. So as we know, you know, the Quran inherit uh, the, the Quran allots inheritance shares to daughters. Apparently they couldn't inherit before. Um, but then there's debate to what degree this was, uh, this was followed, to what degree were believers trying to shift things back to more to more patrilineal schemes. Uh, and, and one area where we see people trying to shift things back to patrilineality is through the creation of wafts or endowments. Um, this, is, this is setting aside a piece of property in perpetuity, usually, and, um, and income from it can be used to benefit either a shrine or a mosque complex or a family or an individual. Um, and very frequently, it seems that in the beginning, walks were created to deprive daughters of inheritances. So if a daughter is stipulated to receive a certain amount of inheritance, according to the Quran, and people did not want to dissolve or divide up a piece of property and give her some of it, because that would mean um, setting it apart from the lineage, then they would take the step, step of creating an endowment. So that it would be uh, inalienable in perpetuity. So it couldn't be touched it wasn't subject to the regular inheritance laws. So while the person who owned the property um, was still alive, they would do this. Um, Again, this seems to be why people started to create walks rather early on. Um, But what's interesting and what I explore in my book is is that later on walks are used for the opposite reason, to actually benefit women. Um, Because women, especially noble women, Uh, in places like Central Asia and Iran, would create them, and they would name their descendants, both male and female, as beneficiaries. So women could become trustees, or they could receive some of the income from the WAP. And and all of this really helped to endow women with things that they might uh, otherwise lack, right? Economic security, authority, prestige, um, and again, it's linking her with her family of birth. So if a woman has access to money and property of her own that is somehow derived from her family of birth, it doesn't it doesn't guarantee autonomy and a happy life. But, um, you know, it can't hurt. Right. So that's another kind of benefit of of recognition of bilateral descent. Um, And the third manifestation of bilateral descent that I look at is is succession. And this is probably the most important implication of the recognition of bilateral descent. So, if a woman is not just a vessel for her offspring and her husband's identity, um, if she herself has an identity, something inherited from her birth family, and something that she can pass along to her children. Then it follows that she can she can manifest this identity uh, potentially in the public sphere as well, and that's you know that could be spiritual authority or scholarly ability or or ruling capacity, um, and this is not all that common in either Islamic or non-Islamic pre-modern societies. You know, women, as we know, in pre-modern societies were generally seen as being inferior to men and unfit for operating in the, in the public sphere, Um, you know, very irrational and very much ruled by their emotions. Um, So there's a lot of treatises and tracts talking about these things. Um, So there's a reluctance to, you know, really have people um, acting as rulers or, um, uh, in other capacities, um, but exceptions do exist, and I and I do look at these exceptions. And this is what I found to be kind of the most openly agentic form of bilateral descent. Um, so, so one one thing I'm looking for in the book, uh, in in the women that I'm studying, is is the degree to which they have agency, or that I can identify agency with them, and you know sort of following Sabah Mahmoud's constructions of agency. I, you know, I feel that there is agency that, that can be identified in the other forms of bilateral descent. Um, But it's, it's definitely more of a veiled form of agency. Um, But this is, you know, succession is the most kind of openly agentic form of bilateral descent. It's a woman having, you know, not, maybe not only the, the ability to govern herself, and make decisions for herself, um, but to govern, to govern others. Um, and this, this did occur, you know, whether we're talking about the Fatimid empire or contemporary Pakistan, and the consequences are huge. You know, this is, she's not a piece of property. She's an autonomous agent. Um, she's able to control her own destiny, as well as um, potentially the destinies of others. So those are the three main ways um, that I look at at sort of expressions of bilateral descent in the book.
0: You mentioned this in in in, an, in another answer just a second ago, but um, I want to ask it anyway in case sure. some of our listeners are not too familiar with Fatima as um, you know a, a, and, and Muhammad's descent. So the subtitle of the book includes the words "the legacy of Fatima," and she's obviously a very essential and recurring figure throughout. How is she relevant? to the discussion of dissent, or as you say in the book, a representative of bilateral dissent?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, she is she's so central um, to this issue of bilateral dissent in Islam, because she's, she's a very early and, um, and perhaps the most important example of it, and it's certainly the example that other people refer to quite a bit. Um, so, so here's, uh, here's a bit of the narrative, um, about this, you know, so as we know, the prophet had no surviving sons and this led him, uh, in the eyes of his enemies to be seen as someone whose, whose lineage was cut off, um, because he had no sons. Um, but traditionally and, and when I'm talking about his enemies, I'm talking, of course, about the Quraysh, right? But traditionally in both um, Sunni and Shi texts, he's not seen as cut off. Um, his lineage is seen as continuing through his grandsons, Hassan and Hussein with Fatima as a conduit. Um, and this appears in Sunni texts, um, but it's, it's, it's necessarily kind of emphasized in Shi'i texts. And that's because of course, Shi'is have a stake in seeing um, Hassan and Hussein as part of their maternal bloodline. So if, if she's are saying that infallibility and Gnostic knowledge and religious authority passed down to Hassan and Hussein from their maternal grandfather, that they deserve to succeed him and their father as leader of the Muslim community, then they have to belong to his lineage. Um, so particularly in Shi texts, we have all of the aspects of Bilateral descent coming out with regard to Fatima um, and her son. So you know we have the so obviously there's the notion that that comes out that Fatima's sons belong to her lineage and to that of her father. And this comes out in hadith, um, in Quran commentary uh, that actually call Hassan and Hussein the Prophet's sons, um, or in texts that talk about the, the prophet's charisma and its Gnostic knowledge being transmitted in the form of light from him to Fatima and from her to her sons. Uh, it comes out in commentary that compares Fatima to Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, as depicted in the Quran, and talks about her ability to transmit her lineage to her sons, just as Mary uh, transmitted her lineage to her sons. Um, many of the same texts also talk about how Fatima um, deserved to inherit from her father. Again, a very clear sign of bilateral descent. And they also talk about her in many ways as a successor to her father. Now, a lot of this was probably done for, um, for political reasons. Um, as I mentioned, she's were really invested In ensuring that Hassan and Hussein and their descendants were seen as the rightful inheritors of the caliphate, Uh, and to do that, they had to make sure that bilateral descent was seen as legitimate. And by no means was everybody unanimously agreeing (laughs) that bilateral descent was legitimate. I mean, they had, you know, they were gotten to fierce arguments with the Abbasids, for example. Um, But a, a kind of unintended consequence was that they potentially unintended, maybe they did intend it. So this kind of consequence that occurred was that they really exalted Fatima and they gave her a very um, secure place in the lineage. So maybe all this was done for political reasons, but um, maybe not. But the, the end result was that Fatima ended up being very much exalted. You have a female occupying an extremely secure place in the lineage um, and you have bilateral descent becoming kind of a, a notion again scholars aren't talking about it in that term but that is essentially what they're talking about um so that becomes something that uh that people refer to later on and and that affects how others view daughters um in both sunni and shi societies um so you know for example amir Hosro was sunni but he was affected by these views on fatima um and in so many of the examples of a bilateral descent, examples of inheritance, or examples of succession um, that I looked at, Fatima was an inspiration.
0: So Maryam, the mother of Jesus, also figures very prominently throughout the book, especially in the ways that particular women are remembered in history, right? So I was familiar with the parallels that are drawn between Fatima and Maryam but then there are also parallels between Maryam and, say, Akbar, the great's mother. That was completely brand new yes. to me. So <laughs> to the point where miracles are attributed to someone like Fatima and Akbar's mother, Yes. Um, especially with regards to chastity, like how they gave birth and everything. Yes. Can you tell us about which women get the status of being paralleled with Maryam and what specific ways they are reimagined like Maryam?
1: Yeah sure another um another great question um yeah I, I i joke in the book um that there's almost a cottage industry of comparisons of Fatiman and Maryam. <laughs> you know it just seems like so many people have 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 looked at this comparison but um you know it's very it's extremely prominent and um uh because she's 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 quite frequently compared to Mary and um and in some ways these comparisons are very natural um so Marianne is the most prominent female figure and and the only named female figure in the Quran, as we know. And she's obviously regarded as extremely holy. So it's natural that people who are uh, trying to exalt other female figures would compare them uh, to her. Right. Um, So and, you know, of course, I'm I'm looking at this from sort of the outsider's perspective or the, you know, the the academic (laughs) semi cynical perspective. I mean, uh, it's potentially, um, you know, from an insider's perspective, uh, the comparisons are are completely valid. I'm not saying they're not valid, but um, but in the case of in the case of Fatima, Um, there's this, you know, I, I just tend to look at what are the political reasons that people are doing these things. (laughs) Um, but in the case of Fatima, there's this, this added benefit, um, to the comparison because people who are trying to legitimize bilateral descent in the case of Hassan and Hussein, um, could very easily say, well, Jesus is referred to in the Quran as Ibn Maryam, right? He's identified with his mother's lineage. He's thought to have descended from Abraham through his mother, so why can't you have the same thing with Hassan and Hussein and their mother? People made this very specific argument. Um, you know, we see it particularly in the in the Shi'i hadith collections. Um, so this is, this is a really um, useful um, uh, means of, or, or the the comparison becomes very productive in that sense. Um, But people made other comparisons, too, and in some cases trying to claim an even higher station for Fatima than for Mary. Um, So if Mary was the queen of all women of her time, then Fatima was the queen of the women of her world and Mary's world and queen of women from the beginning to the end. So you have this kind of one-upsmanship that takes place, um, which may have been part of, you know, uh, I don't know, one-upsmanship with, uh, with Christians. Um, and, um, and yes, many similar um, miracles are attributed to Fatima as the ones attributed to, to Mary, especially around the issues of, of chastity and purity. Um, so like Mary, um, Fatima was considered a virgin, um, although here um, virginity was defined as never having um, menstruated rather than someone who never had intercourse. Um so she was never defiled uh, by blood, and she supposedly gave birth from her thigh, right so we have these miraculous births occurring um, uh, which are in many ways similar to the miraculous births uh, birth of Jesus um, there are other um, th- other miraculous births uh, associated with other women who are compared to, to Mary. So, um, so yes, the, um, there was a distant ancestor of the emperor Akbar and whose name was um, Alankua. Um, she's this kind of semi-mythical princess um, who is supposed to have been impregnated by a ray of light. Right. <laughs> um, and so, and she is often compared to Mary as is Akbar's, Actual mother who who was named Mary or Maria Maria Mekani. Um, so comparing these women to um to Mary was a way of exalting them, um, of emphasizing their purity and their chastity and their kind of miraculous capacity, um, which uh, which, you know really, um, uh, you know, if you're looking for legitimation, this is a way to, to kind of gain legitimation. And um, you know, the question of chastity is, that's one that I really consider throughout the book, but, um, but for many of these women, their chastity is the reason that they're chosen to play these tremendous roles, right? And, and their chastity also bequeaths upon them tremendous power. So Fatima's chastity is supposed to have, um, secured redemption for her children and possibly for, for their followers as well. Um, and one other person uh, who is compared to Mary is Khan Khanum, this um, 16th century Safavid princess who, who reigned briefly. Um, and I think that in this case, the comparison was done uh, to try to make a, a female ruler more palatable, right? So maybe there would have been more suspicion around a woman who was in the public sphere that maybe she would be unchaste, but by comparing her to Mary and by, by playing up, Uh, The chastity and the purity um, that this association with Mary gave her, this was a way to get beyond that and potentially to make her more acceptable as a ruler.
0: So let's talk about Fadak, which I think is just one of the saddest moments in Islamic history, and in my opinion, although I think this is objective and objective fact, one of the best examples of women's status going downhill immediately after Muhammad's death. So what is Fadak, and why is it so important? What is the dispute, and yeah. what are the Shia Sunni accounts on this? And
1: yeah, it's a it's an incredibly complicated issue, um, and yeah. uh, and I agree it is it is very sad. Um, uh, yeah, so um, basically, both both Sunni and Shi Hadith collectors and historians like Tabari um, tell us about a piece of property. Um, named Fadak, that that had belonged to to the prophet. And it was an ancient oasis town, uh, about two or three days' journey from Medina. And um, its inhabitants produced things like dates and handicrafts that were were valuable. And after the prophet's death, there were a lot of arguments uh, about to whom it and its revenue belonged. And Fatima claimed it. uh, And she said, according to some accounts, that the prophet had gifted it to her before he died. Um, According to other accounts, um, she said that she rightfully inherited it as his daughter, according to Quranic inheritance laws. Now, a paternal uncle, Abbas, also claimed it. Um, But Abu Bakr, the caliph at the time, said that it belonged to the caliphate and that its proceeds would be given to charity. And he quoted the prophet uh, saying that the children of prophets do not inherit Um, That hadith, by the way, is disputed. (laughs) Um, Fatima herself disputes that. Um, But this caused a lot of conflict between Fatima and Abu Bakr. So Fatima herself uh, reportedly gave a very big khutbah about it in which she she argued that Fadak had been given to her according to Quranic uh, inheritance laws. And she also really strongly criticized the Muslim community for the direction that it was going in. And for turning its back on the Book of God, and she was reportedly so angry at Abu Bakr uh, about this that she did not um, she didn't speak to him until she died, you know, which wasn't long after the Prophet. Now, some Sunni texts do say that that he actually returned Fadak to her, and they and they uh, they play up the conflict a lot less. Um, but even after her death, it continued to be a real bone of contention. Um, so it changed hands a number of times over the centuries. Um, it continued to be argued over between the Abbasids, descendants of Abbas, right, the prophet's paternal uncle, and and Alids or the Shiites, right? So there's this continued struggle between the proponents of a patrilineal and a bilateral uh, scheme of descent. And, and it becomes really a very visceral uh, symbol of the caliphate itself, of Gnostic knowledge, of religious authority. So Fatima is, is implicitly claiming these things for Ali, for her sons and their descendants. Um, and that's why I think... Um, she's became so interested in the fate of Fadak. And here is my, my cynical view once again, which, you know, may be wrong, <laughs> um, I'm always looking at the political reasons. So I think that they weren't so interested in women's rights. Um, they were concerned about showing that Hassan and Hussein and their descendants had the right to temporal and spiritual leadership and Fatima's ability to inherit Fadak and to pass it on becomes symbolic of that. Um, but in a way, um, that's, that's, that's very interesting to contemporary feminism. It becomes representative of a woman's right to inherit and of her children's right to inherit from the maternal line, right, uh, from her family of birth. And this is what was being denied to Fatima. Um, and the way that medieval she inheritance laws took shape really shows this. Um, so she laws tend to be much more favorable to daughters Uh, and to their offspring than do Sunni laws, right? And less so to the Asaba, right? The agnatic kin. So under certain circumstances, a daughter would inherit much more under Shi'i law than under Sunni. Um, So for example, if if a deceased person leaves a paternal grandfather, a wife and a daughter, under Sunni law, um, the daughter would inherit uh, substantially less than she would under under Shia law, and the, and the paternal grandfather is favored in the in the Sunni scheme. Um, a daughter's son, under certain circumstances, would inherit much more under Shia law than Sunni. So, if a if the deceased leaves a paternal uncle and a uterine brother, um, that's a brother from the same mother, and a daughter's son, um, so potentially um, the daughter's son would get nothing under Sunni law, but everything under Shia. So this is really claiming them as, uh, you know, the daughter-son as intrinsic parts of of that birth family. Um, And the jurists and the scholars who talked about these inheritance laws often referred back to the case of Fatima and Fadak. So I think that we could say that the example of Fatima and the way that Fadak, uh, you know, was taken away from her, people tried to take Fadak away from her, um, really helped to shape those laws. Um, I have so many many questions about Fatima, but I don't don't know how much time we should, like you said, she's just one of,
0: and you should know this book actually revived my interest in her. Um, I didn't even know I was that invested in her and I was half angry the whole time that I was reading the book. Um, But I learned so much from it. And one of those things was the idea that she had a mushaf um, of her own, that that was just brand new information for me. What is
1: going on here and how well known is this notion? Yeah. Um, I think it's fascinating too. Um, and to me, this is this is just another way in which she, she kind of appears um, in the light of a, of a successor. Um, she, so mushaf just means book or codex or a collection of sheets. And it's a term that's often used to refer to the Quran. But in Shi'ism, um, Fatima is also supposed to have received a mushaf. So this appears in in Hadith collection, right? Um, So Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, is supposed to have uh, visited her after her father's death to comfort her and to have told her about her father and his place and future events and what would happen to her children. And Ali was supposed to have written all this down. Um, Now, there's um, there's some discrepancy over what is in the Musaf of of Fatima. You know, obviously we don't we don't have it. Um, But according to to some traditions, it has legal rulings in it. According to others, it, it doesn't, but it does have marked similarities to the Quran in the way it's described. Um, so it's supposed to have been a divinely inspired text, you know, again, delivered through the, uh, the intermediary of Gabriel and to have been imbued with extraordinary wisdom and powers. Um, so according to one Hadith, only the possessor of the Mus'haf has the authoritative, divinely inspired knowledge. Um, so one of the imams, the sixth imam, Jafar as said that the book contains what makes people need us and makes us in need of no one. And it's been passed down from Fatima to the imams. Right. So so she is the source of it. Um, I mean, ultimately, God is the source of it. But, <laughs> but she's the one uh, to whom the revel- the this divine inspiration was initially given. Um, and there are very kind of prophet like uh, similarities here. Right. It's a text that bears similarities to the Quran. She in receiving it is similar to a prophet. Um, so, this is why I, I believe that it puts her in the category of a successor, right? Um, so, I mean, she scholars are very careful to say that she's not a prophet, she's not an imam, but it does certainly um, put her in the category of, of a successor, I think. Um, and I think it's fairly well known to she's, um, maybe not too, too well known outside of Shiism, but um, I think it's very, fairly well known within Shiism. It's really fascinating yeah,
0: um, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about other female successors maybe in the form of rulers or otherwise as succeeding their fathers or other male relatives to public or political positions who yeah. are some such women in pre-modern islamic history and how is their leadership received
1: yeah um so there are i i want to i do want to note that it's it's not common it was not um it was not common for medieval um, Muslim right. daughters to succeed their fathers uh, to leadership uh, positions, but, but it, it does happen. <laughs> um, and, um, and so it, it, it does happen. And, uh, and I look at, in the book at, at a few different cases of it. And I think that there are some, some commonalities that we can find um, among the different examples um, in which it occurs, including the fact that of course, these are dynastic societies um, where leadership, Is associated with a particular family um, which possesses a particular charisma that qualifies them to rule so women are frequently seen as enjoying that um, that charisma too and under certain circumstances as maybe when there's not a fit male relative um, they women can can be seen as able to rule and they can um, they can manifest these qualities that are not typically associated with women, things like good sense and reason and judgment and military expertise, all these things that women aren't supposed to have. Um, so it might happen only briefly. It might happen only when there's not a fit male. Um, there might be a lot of constraints, but it does happen. Um, so we see it with the, the Fatimid empire, for example, with the princess um, Sit al-Mulk. Um, so her father, the Caliph al-Aziz, um, supposedly thought very highly of her. He asked her opinion on matters of state. Um, so you see a lot of these people being educated, being brought into the court, being consulted. Um, after he died, um, her brother, Saddam's Mok's brother, the Caliph al hakan also consulted with her. Um, after he disappeared under kind of mysterious circumstances, um, she ruled briefly during an interregnal period, um, and then after that, when her nephew was nominally ruling, she was really the ruler, right? And this is something that historians of the time attest to. Um, we see it also with, um, with the Safavid empire, with um, Pari Khan Khanum, the princess that I, that I mentioned earlier. She was an extremely bright woman. Um, again, this is a case where her father Shah Tahmasp um, regarded her very highly and kind of cultivated her and um, and consulted her on many decisions. Um, as with um, Sital Muk, um, you know, her her uh, Parichan uh, brothers su- succeeded her father, but she she likewise um, ruled briefly during during an interregnal period. Now, with both Sital Muk and Parikhan Khanum, there's lots of Intrigue, there's kind of messy stuff that occurs between them and their brothers and their followers, and they get, um, they get drawn into or, or maybe create a lot of intrigue. Um, Pari Khan Khanna was actually executed at the order of one of her uh, brother's wives um, when she was just 29. Um, so they didn't always have the happiest endings, but this, these were things that, that happened to anyone, right? Men and women. Um, so um, so it's maybe kind of par for the course. Um, the point is that they were able to be uh, really major players on the political stage um, as a result of these dynastic connections and this kind of transmission of, of charisma. Um, one more example is, um, is the Delhi Sultanate um, in India, uh, a woman named Razia uh, uh, who ruled for almost four, uh, almost four years in the 13th century. And she's uh, her example is really interesting. She was apparently appointed by her father. So her father, Sultan Iltutmish, um, supposedly recognized her very strong uh, capacity for ruling, and he designated her as his successor um, over his sons and over the objections of his advisors. And she did rule, again, for almost four years. And um, again, this is it's really interesting because when her rule began, um, she had to be secluded as a woman, but it's difficult to rule from seclusion. You can't ride out among the people. Um, you know, you can't do the things that you need to do as as, as a ruler. So in order to kind of deal with these cons, uh, constraints, she decided basically not to be a woman and she began to to dress as a man. <laughs> so she essentially became a man as ruler. She went out, she rode elephants among the people, she led armies. Um, and And this is a really you know, striking idea for us now, I think, you know, particularly at this juncture now when um, the issue of gender ambiguity is so much a part of life. Um, But what it shows to me is that the boundaries between the genders were not as kind of impermeable um, and fixed as we may think them. You know, so women could essentially become men, right? They could transcend their gender. Um, and, And although she was very hotly criticized for it later, at the time, it doesn't seem to have caused much of a tumult. Um, and, and that's another, another thing I found interesting is that a lot of historians who are contemporary with these rulers um, and are looking at their rules are, are speaking about them in kind of matter-of-fact ways, right? Not as though it was a huge deal and, and also praising them. Um, so, you know, it seems as though it wasn't the most outlandish thing in the world to have a woman, uh, a woman ruling you know, especially when you have these dynastic um, connections. And again, many of them were both um, encouraged and cultivated by their fathers. Right. That was
0: really fascinating, too. Basically, if I can't, if I can't, if I can't be respected as a leader because I'm a, I'm a woman, then I'll yes. just not be
1: a woman. <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
0: <laughs> right. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners um, about your research or this book?
1: Um, I do want to, you know, I, I, I did want to note about, um, about Fatima that, um, you know, I spoke, I spoke kind of briefly about her, her khutbah. Um, yes. Oh, I can't, I, but, I can't believe I didn't ask a question. Oh, that's, that's okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I mentioned, I mentioned it briefly. Um, but I think that, um, to me, uh, you know, she's 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 depicted in a, in a multiplicity of ways, um, but she's often depicted. Uh, I, th- I think the traditional way of looking at her as is as of this kind of very shy, quiet, you know, unassuming individual who kind of preferred to fade into the background. Someone who tried to hide away from public view, was very worried about um, being seen by the eyes of men. You know, if she was going to have leadership and authority, if she was going to be a successor, it was going to be in the next world, not in this world, you know, um, and in the next world, she does have a lot of, you know, incredible powers of intercession and so on. But really in her, in her hutba, you know, I think she really, you know, comes out as a successor there because she is, um, you know, she's extremely critical of of the direction that the Ummah is taking, right? Um, as I mentioned already, she's kind of pointing people in in the right direction. She's portraying herself as the daughter of a warner, which is um, investing herself with authority. And and this is also how it's been received, right? Both in, um, in pre-modern and modern times. Um, so pre-modern Shi'i hadith collectors actually quote Fatima's khutbah in the same way that they quote the imams, right? So here she's not a transmitter of hadith. She's She's a source of hadith, Um, so um, so to me that's 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 very meaningful. Um, And there are some contemporary Shi'i scholars who look at what she did and stood for, and they say that she has infallibility, like the imams do. That she was, you know, the first to point out the corruption of the ruling party, and that she really is um, a model for behavior, just as the prophet and the imams were. So this to me is really kind of signals is kind of pointing in the direction of her um, of her. As as a successor, even though you know I, I don't agree with with those scholars who say that she was actually like the rightful leader of the Caliphate <laughs> rather than than Ali, um, but um, but I think that the, you know we do see these 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 signs and indications that she um, that that uh, that she that in some ways she was seen as as a successor and as you know as one who could act in the public sphere in a, in a temporal way rather than um, you know just having spiritual authority.
0: Right. No, her sermon definitely, I mean, and, and I get that there's dispute about how much of the sermon actually is hers and how much of it, you know, people added on later yes. to it, but, yes. but both in the end, the Shiai accounts do at least acknowledge that she gave some kind of a speech at the mosque and she's criticizing Abu Bakr. And, um, and it's a very, I feel like just that, just that stand alone is a very, very powerful il- illustration of her knowledgeability, her outspokenness, her desire for justice. But that's not necessarily how she's often depicted, and and you, I really enjoyed the section also in the book where you talk about. where you you point out that she's not all she's not necessarily often depicted as a figure of authority, um, but then there are moments where scholars do acknowledge. You know, they they well quote from her speech, and um, as though it, the way that they do the imams as well. So. I thank you for pointing that out. I did, I definitely did men, mean to ask a, a oh, question. Oh, no problem
1: at all. No <laughs> problem at all.
0: <laughs> so, um, before we close, we like to hear what our authors are currently working on. Um, are you working on any projects? Assuming you are, because we're in the middle of the pandemic for, for God's sake. Um, yes. So no, I, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I,
1: I have been able to work on a few things here and there. Um, thank God. And, um, you know, I, I recently uh, finished up a couple of articles that had been on the back burner for a long time. And it was really good to work on on things that were short. Um, so one of them is actually an offshoot from this book that didn't make it into the book. It's an examination of, um, of Hind Bint Utbah, the mother of Muawiya, the caliph. Right. And how his identification, well, always identification as Ibn Hind, right, which he was sometimes called Son of Hind. How that represents bilateral descent, but in but not in a good way, right? right. <laughs> in a bad way. So, so I I did I have a brief article which looks at that. Um, another project is an article about the story of the prince um, Siyavash in the Shah Shahnameh um, by Ferdowsi, and how he how he represents a sort of um, supranational ethos. Um, so those are two things that I just kind of finished up. Um, but the, big, the next big book project, the big project ahead of me, is, um, is in some ways a return to my roots. Um, so Amir uh, Hosro, the person who started all of this, um, wrote several divans of poetry and he wrote autobiographical prefaces to, to all of them. And one of these prefaces to the divan known as Quadrat al kemal is very long and detailed um, and contains a a lot of historical and literary information, including literary criticism. Um, So I'm coming up with a critical edition of it and, and other prefaces um, for Murti Classical Library of India. And I'm translating them as well. And um, this is really exciting for me. I've, I've kind of gotten away from working intensively with, um, with Persian texts, and I've missed it. Um, it's also exciting because Amir Khosrow led such a colorful life. Um, and, you know, it's very cool to, to get to follow him along on his, um, on his adventures. Um, on the other hand, it's it's uh, very challenging because he fills his writing with puns. You know, he never met a pun that he didn't like, and trying to replicate that in translation is just um, is just daunting. Uh-huh. So, um, so this is the the big task ahead of me in the next project that I will be turning to soon. inshallah. Uh, right.
0: No, oh, that's some very exciting stuff. Looking forward to it. Oh, thank you. So this would be all for our interview. Thank you so much for your time and for your book. Uh, I have no doubts that our readers, our viewers will also enjoy it very much. Thank,
1: thank you. you so much. <laughs> thank you very much.
0: So that was my conversation with Alyssa Gabe on her wonderful book, Gender and Succession in Medieval and Early Modern Islam, Bilateral Descent and the Legacy of Fatima, published in 2020. Thank you for listening and I will see you again soon.